Well, brethren, all of you recognize that we're living in very, uh, very exciting times. We're having the greatest financial crisis for about 60 years. And uh, some people say it's going to get worse before it gets better. We don't know for sure, but we need to pray that God will sustain his own people and give them enough jobs and employment so that they can carry on. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say that we would probably be able to go through these trials, financial trials, because he felt that as long as the work needed to be done in the way that it is being done, he would help us have enough tithes and offerings to carry on the work. If you see what I mean, if none of our brethren have income, they can't send in tithes and offerings, and God may let us have a certain recovery, and I think he probably will. He will have us, I don't think we'll ever get back the way we were, but have a certain recovery uh, for several years. We don't know whether that's five or 15 years. Some of you young people wish it are 15 or 25 years. And uh, old, old guys wish it were closer to five years, but we don't know. And uh, certainly it could be 10 or 15 more years. And many of you may yet have the chance to get married and to have children and all that kind of thing. Mr. Armstrong used to say, uh, you know, that you need to plan your life as though you have 50 more years, but live your life as though tomorrow is your last day, which it might be, you know, for even those who are younger, if you get hit by a truck when you get out on the highway or something. So live your life as if you just have one more day, but plan your life as far as your education and your training and your job and your marriage and your future as though you had 50 more years, realizing you might have a number more years left. I, I deeply think it'll be a lot less than 50 years, and I think he would too, so maybe it's better to say 20 years. But at any rate, you know what I mean. Don't just think, plan your life like it's all over tomorrow, because it may not be. That's why we're told to watch and pray, and God wants us to do that. But anyway... We're living in very exciting times, and we are at the end of one age, and yet I hope that all of us, and even you young people, can grasp the fact and get excited about the fact that we are entering, very quickly, a different age. You're going to see everything around you wind down in this age. We sang America the Beautiful, and that's wonderful. And God chasten and bless us. It says in one place there, indirectly in that. And God does bless us by chastening us and teaching us lessons. But he's certainly doing that. And now the other nations are saying they're not going to rely on our pattern of financial approach to things. And they're going to start a different way of life. And in many ways, they're starting to take over. Other experts are calling it the Chinese centuries. You know, they're thinking it's going to be the century of China. Because China now has trillions of dollars. Trillions in reserve, more than any nation in human history. Is it going to be the Chinese century? No. The Chinese are going to have trouble, probably internal problems. They're already having some in the provinces, and I don't know exactly how it will be. God tells us the overall picture. He doesn't give us the twists and turns along the way. But there may be some kind of uprisings and splits in China. I imagine that's what will happen, plus maybe a war with India or Russia or something else to weaken them. However, God works that out. Then it will appear to be the European century because the United States of Europe is trying to form, but they can't quite get there, as you know. They keep trying to get everybody to sign the Lisbon Treaty and trying the other things, and they aren't quite ready to do that. But they're going to do it eventually, and there will be a strong man come and get them together and a very powerful uh, pope to lead them and stir them beyond what we have today. 
and uh, those things are going to happen, then people will think it's the European century. And it will appear to be the European century for five or six years, whatever, including the three-and-a-half-year tribulation when they're in charge. And all up and down the streets of Rome and Berlin and Paris, there will be rejoicing, and they'll think, well, you know, we're the big shots, and the Americans finally got it. And they'll be clinking their beer steins up and down the Kapurstendam in Berlin and their wine glasses up and down the Via Veneto in Rome. And they'll think America finally got what was coming to her. We, the American tourists, used to come over and look down on us. And now we're going to look down on them. But that won't last very long. This coming century will be the century of Jesus Christ. And it's not going to be, the, it's going to get into that part of the century, I'm sure, within the next 10 or 15 years, and maybe less than that. So we have to watch and pray, but recognize the real future that is going to work out. And brethren, I, last week was my two, I had two anniversaries. Last week was the 59th anniversary of my baptism, because I was baptized 59 years ago, a week ago Friday. And, I was ordained then the next day, 56 years ago, I guess, and had three years of training. I didn't plan it that way, but I was baptized. And then three years and one day later, I was like the apostles, I was ordained. And I never remotely planned that, never even thought about it until the last year or two. But at any rate, those were anniversaries, and I've had a while to watch all these things. And I can tell you, with all my heart, that God is there, the big picture that God gave us in His Word, and that Mr. Armstrong articulated, not perfectly, but far more than any human being, that big picture, the prophetic scenario, has been working out. And I have been watching that. And I have watched now for 59 years to see that God's way works. It always works. That doesn't mean that all of us are going to live to be 80 or 90, some of you young people say, well, you're crippling around. It hasn't worked for you. Well, why do you get to be 78 and a half? <laughs> Let's see how many of you are playing handball and lifting weights as I was just a few weeks ago when you're 78 and a half. So if something happens when you're 78 or 85, or in Mr. Partian's case, maybe it won't happen until he's 95 or 102, <laughs> he's really blessed. But, you know, we don't all live forever in this physical life. And I hope all of you can figure that out. That's no fault of God's. That's part of God's plan. But anyway, brethren, in this terrible time that's coming, and there is going to be the greatest tribulation, so it'll be a trouble such as has never been before, known or ever shall be, terrible suffering and deprivation. Mr. Pyle in his sermonette described this, something this Irina went through and the terrible suffering as we read in the Warsaw Ghetto and other parts of Poland that people went through and the concentration camps. Dr. Manel took my wife and me to a concentration camp outside Berlin uh, this past summer. And it was a, a sort of a model concentration camp. They were, they were using it to model the other concentration camps after that. And there were brochures telling you about some of the things that went on there. And they had these two great big posts and tell how the people were hung up on those posts and they were, you know, at like animals crying out and so on and so forth as they tortured them. And that was going on while I was attending junior high school dances and parties. And I didn't realize how bad it was until later on. Once the war was over, they began to realize what the Nazis were in fact doing. But what can sustain you and you young people think about it? You're going to have a ways to go yet. 
what can sustain you and give you purpose and give you hope in the years ahead. Every one of us needs to think about that. We recently had in the paper, in fact it was just yesterday or the day before, I tore out a couple clippings here, and one is here from the 20, well, 4th, just uh, I guess three days ago on Wednesday. It has the headline here about this big Madoff investor, this Frenchman. I won't try to pronounce his name, Mr. Pardon. We'll have to get Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Mr. Pardon up here to pronounce it. But he was a French investor who lost a lot of money. And the co-founder of an investment advisory firm that lost $1.5 billion in the Madoff scandal was found dead Tuesday in an apparent suicide in his uh, Manhattan office. Other letter verses or, or uh, uh, articles have come out and described that in detail, and now they're sure it was a suicide. So he killed himself. Was he totally poor? When you read carefully the other articles, he probably is worth 10 or $25 million. Now, if my wife and I, or most of you, if you were given $25 million, you'd think, wow, you died and gone to heaven already, type of thing. But here's a man who'd been so wealthy, he's brought down to make just a few million dollars, or a few tens of million dollars, so he goes and kills himself. Why? During the Great Depression of 1929, and a lot of you older people have heard this and read it, some of you young people maybe just barely heard of it, many men lost their jobs, maybe lost most of their money, and they literally jumped out of the office buildings in Manhattan and killed themselves. Why? Were they going to starve to death? Were they going to be put in a German concentration camp and slowly beaten and beaten and beaten and tortured while the people were screaming all around them? No. They just were going to have to take a lower place in life and start all over if they had had the understanding of what they could have done. But they thought, my purpose in life is to be big shot, to be important, to have all this money, and my reputation in front of all these other big shots is more important to me than life. Most of them, frankly, didn't even think it through that way. They were just shattered because their whole life was racked up in their superego, in their own image of self, their own image of self. And so they killed themselves. Then in the paper, just uh, the other day also on uh, Christmas Eve, they had this article in the editorial section called A Christmas Tale. Now, we don't observe Christmas, and you all know that, and yet many of us who did observe it, as I did for 19 years, you can have some kind of sentimental feeling because, you know, it's associated with family and things, but it's very moving. And I won't try to tell it all here. Uh, it's something not near as moving or powerful, perhaps, as Mr. Uh, in a different way than Mr. Uh, uh, Pyle's story about this lovely woman that saved these kids. But this tells about a man, a Russian, a white, in the white Russian army before the communists took over, and he and his friends, it was 16 men and one woman. They didn't have room for them to get on this boat to get out of Russia when they were being tracked down because the communists were winning, and so they decided to get out by skiing, and they skied apparently hundreds of miles in icy conditions. And they went on and on to get out of Russia. One woman and 16 men, including my father. So his son, who's already quite old, but still he shows his father uh, was already 49 when he had him. And, of course, he, he was older. 
decided they should try to get out another way. In the middle of a very snowy night, they skied through the Bolshevik lines toward Finland. They kept trying to avoid the German or the uh, communist uh, guards and so forth. And it was days and days. And on one of those timeless dark days, the women, woman in the group, reminded the men of something they had all lost. Tomorrow would be Christmas Eve. And so they had to uh, eat for a while. They had virtually no food. They were reduced to eating beeswax candles. That's all they could eat, beeswax candles. And they were virtually starving. But <clears throat> on Christmas Eve, with the dark veil of night over covering them, they lit the candles and their small pine became a Christmas tree. They cut down a small pine. The scene seemed almost mystical. Seventeen human beings sitting in the glow of a makeshift Christmas tree in the thicket of a primeval forest. They forgot about the frost of the northern wintry light, their exhaustion and their anxiety about the future. No more hatred remained in their hearts, my father told us. Only love for God and men alike, friends and enemies. They said a prayer sang some hymns, and then sat silently thinking about what they were leaving behind, including their families. My father never saw his mother or his father again. The candles burned out and it became dark again. So they went on. And so he lived until he was 93 years old, 1988, and told his family about this. So the man writing this says, This Christmas, besides opening presents and singing carols, my family will observe one other tradition. We will drink a toast and give thanks to a man who fled a murderous, cruel dictatorship, which the communist regime became, of course, and give uh, thanks to a man who fled this dictatorship and gave us a gift more precious than anything else the chance to grow up in freedom and to enjoy the liberty that is our birthright as Americans. So we have a lot to be thankful for, brethren. And when you think about all the things that men and women have gone through to get us here, our pioneers who came across, you know, this nation, who came across the various, the Ohio River, the Mississippi River, went on west. You've heard of the Donner Party who went on up there near a place uh, uh, where uh, uh, Brian uh, and, and Jeff Ball's parents live out there and, and Mrs. Uh, McNair right toward Sacramento. They came on up above Reno and they perished in the snow, in that terrible snow. So many people died getting there to make this nation what it was. So we do need to recognize we need a sense of purpose. They had one. We need a sense of perseverance a sense of perseverance, and they had one. And we need to understand that there is something far more important in life than just having fun for the moment. And then if that fun stops, as it's going to stop for a lot of you younger people when the television doesn't even work and the electricity is turned off and everything crashes around us, you've got to have a bigger purpose. You've got to have one. You really do. I want to turn to familiar psalm now. And I've often started sermons uh, like this with this psalm, but still it's very wonderful to read. Psalm 8, if you turn there, Psalm chapter 8. O eternal, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, you who set your glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? Here we are on this little planet out in the darkness of space. And the great God, the Creator, looks down on us in a special way. And we need to recognize most of the trials you and I go through are absolutely nothing compared to the trials that were gone through by many of our ancestors getting over here in the first place from Europe on ships that were just bouncing up and down and many died along the way, of course, and then going across the West and finally to the West, I should say, to develop this nation. And then trials others went through while I was in junior high school being tortured to death slowly and a concentration camp in Europe and all the other things that have happened all over. This man we read about in the Wall Street Journal, his father fleeing from the communists in the snow and trying how to, somehow to get away. And they did. They did get away. And he had children then in his older age because he survived. What is man that you're mindful of him? And what is the son of man that you visit him? For you've made him a little lower than the angels and the Hebrew word here is Elohim. It can mean even the gods, the judges. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O eternal, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. There is a great God and that God is working out a magnificent purpose here below. And we've got to always think on that purpose. I don't care what happens to you, what happens to your wife, what happens to your husband, what happens to your children. It won't all be fun stuff, brethren, for the next 10 or 15 years. You know that. I hope you know it. But you've got to think about that purpose and understand that God does let us go through trials and tests. And you read about the great saints of God in Hebrews 11, about the men and women that had the various trials and tests that they went through, and how one of them was even sawn in two, sawn asunder, it said. Would you like to be sawn in two? That may have been Isaiah. We don't know. I have a book here I'd recommend to you, and I read it once about 30 years ago. I read it again recently. I just finished, in fact, last night. And it's Man's Search for Meaning, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I can't begin to read all this book and, and don't want to spend too much time, but I just recommend it because this man went for over three years in a series of concentration camps, Nazi concentration camps. He was a Jew, Viktor Frankl, a word that... Latin name is often Jewish, as some of you know. I know we had Richard Frankel as a minister. I got to know as a student when he was over in Brickett Wood, or later a minister in, uh, in the Worldwide Church. But he was a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, a very highly trained individual, and one of the most respected psychoanalysts of our age. He's got a new theory going that they say should surpass the Freudian psychology called logotherapy because Freud tries to center everything around sex and your desires and your suppressed desires for sex affect everything you do. Then others have tried to modify it in other ways, but he has a much bigger picture here in this particular book. 
And I want to read you just a little bit of this to give you a little bit of the flavor. He talks about being herded here after uh, taken in this, to this concentration camp. And for the great majority of our transport that is on these train and elsewhere, uh, about 90% it meant death. Their sentence was carried out within the next few hours, in other words, when they first got there. And they came into this building, and the word bath was written over it. And they were handed a piece of soap as they came in. Of course, the soap didn't really mean anything. That was just to fool them. And most of you know what that meant. They were being herded in there to get ready to die or to be, have the gas come. We who were saved, the minority of our transport, found out the truth in the evening. I inquired from other prisoners who had been there for some time, who were my colleagues, and uh, where my colleagues and a friend had been sent. Was he sent to the left side? Yes, I replied. Then you can see him over there, the man told him. Where? A hand pointed to the chimney a few hundred yards away, which is sending a column of flame up into the gray sky of Poland. It dissolved into a sinister cloud of smoke. That's where your friend is, floating up to heaven, was the answer. But I still did not understand the truth until it was explained to me in plain words. His friend and along with thousands of others, were burned, of course, in the gas ovens of Adolf Hitler. He was ascending up in the smoke. This happened over and over again, as you know, all over Europe in Hitler's ovens. And I read, a, of course, a book on that title that years ago. As they came in, he describes then later the humiliation, how they were treated. We were herded into another room to be shaved. Not only our heads were shorn, but not a hair was left on our entire bodies. They shaved off the hair everywhere. She was just totally all weird looking without any bodily hair or anything. While we were waiting for the shower, our nakedness was brought home to us. We really had nothing now except our bare bodies, even minus hair. All we possessed literally was all our naked existence. All links with the past were gone. No clothes, no friends, no possessions, not even your bodily hair. You all looked at each other bald and all of your body, no hair. You realized how weak you were and how short life can be at that point. And he describes that all through this book very carefully, not some horror story, but just what it meant to the psyche of individuals and how they had to try to cope with that situation as a very... Uh, very thoughtful, very thoughtful, very touching book. He goes ahead here then. Let's turn to page uh, 104 I have written, and I, I want to turn a little bit later here about the meaning of this. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom of independence of mind even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others. Now, this woman Mr. Pyle talked about was a person like that, obviously. She wasn't in the camps, but she took her life in her hands to do what she did. Comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything could be taken from a man, but one thing. Get this, folks. One thing can't be taken away. The last human freedom to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. It's not what happens to you. Oh, my parents were not rich, and so I have this excuse. Or I was born with a withered arm, and I have that excuse. 
Or I, you know, have polio as a child and have to limp. And that's my excuse. Or I have some other excuse. This man explains, after you've read this book, you can grasp that the ultimate choice is how you choose to be. And he understood that as a psychoanalyst and proves this through this book. People make choices. And we all have the capacity to choose how we will react. And he brings out another awesome thing, which we have all known before, but he brings it out in a psychoanalytical way, which is very helpful, that in order to make the right choice, in order to have courage under adversity, you must have an overarching goal. You need to have some purpose. Otherwise, you'll simply want to kill yourself. As he said, many of the men ask him, why don't I just kill myself? And he had to talk them out of it and show them there was an overarching goal. Some of them killed themselves anyway. In the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him mentally and spiritually. He may retain his human dignity, even in a concentration camp. Dzeski said once, there is only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my suffering. You know, are we worthy of our suffering? We have to bear the sufferings of Christ, and we will later on. So that's an important thing to understand. As we have said before, I'm reading here a little bit later, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp first had to succeed in showing him some future goal. He who has a why to live uh, for can bear almost any how. If you have a why to live, you can bear any type of existence. How you live, your suffering, but you understand why. There's a purpose. There's a goal ahead. This could be a guiding motto for all future psychotherapy uh, teachers. Whenever there was an opportunity for one to give them a daily why and aim for their lives in order to strengthen them uh, to hear, to bear their terrible uh, hour of existence. So it, he shows that very, very clearly over and over again. I want to go back now to a little bit later reading my notes here so I don't cover too many uh, references. But going back to page 213 and 14 to the very last ones. And I hope a lot of you, if you like this kind of thing, it can give you a certain, frankly, exhilaration to read it. Maybe one of the most worthwhile books you've ever read. It has been to me to read it again. And I read it earlier many years ago, maybe 25 or 30 years ago. But back on page 213 and 14, let me flash back there. I don't have this uh, marked as well. But anyway, uh, he showed it's not a product of your heredity or environment. It's how you choose to act to, uh, react to that. Page 213. Man has both potentialities, that is to be a bad person or a good person, within himself. One is actualized, or which one? which one is actualized, bad or good, depends on decisions, but not on conditions. Conditions don't make you the way you are. Decisions make you the way you are. I think most of you know that the modern psychologists try to say, well, uh, this mass murderer was that way because his mother didn't love him or a school teacher spanked him when he was young and therefore that warped his personality and blah, 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 blah. 
Well, all the other boys were spanked hard. Why did he turn out to be a murderer? Because of his decisions. That's why every person needs to learn to react positively to whatever circumstance where he is. We are dependent on God for help to make the right decision, of course. And we're called of God, and that gives us an extra weight of responsibility because judgment now is upon the house of God. We have the knowledge of the truth. We have an understanding of why we're here. We're here made in the image of God to become like God is someday. We're made a little lower than the angels, finally to have glory. And when we understand that awesome purpose and keep that purpose in mind, then we can make right decisions. Our generation is realistic, Dr. Frankel writes, for we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who has invented the gas chamber of Auschwitz. However, he is also that being who has entered those gas chambers upright with the Lord's Prayer or the Shema Yisrael on his lips. Excuse me for getting uh, emotional. I was telling my wife I get emotional a lot more quickly since I've had the stroke. I don't know why, if it's sapping my strength or something or other, but I can get very emotional, I guess, at this time. So I don't want to have you tough guys thinking I'm turning to sissy. If you do that, I may, <laughs> I may hit you with my cane. <laughs> anyway, but it's a very meaningful uh, book there, and we need to understand that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 now, brethren, in your New Testament. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to sample a little bit of this tea up here while it's still warm. Romans chapter 8 is one of the more inspiring parts of the Bible, as many of you know. And if you read it carefully, you'll see that. Let's turn, let's begin with verse uh, 12. Romans 8, verse 12. For to live according, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you just follow the people around you in the fleshly poles, you will die. And of course, you'll go into the second death eventually if you don't repent. But if by the Spirit, through the help of God's Spirit, which you can have, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live forever. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Not those people who were once upon a time baptized and never used God's Spirit, because some of our brethren have been baptized. Some of them, I'm not trying to put any of you down. I'm just trying to make you think. Some of you have been baptized, but it didn't take. It didn't really change you, and you have not been changed. And you may need to realize that yourself and get really correctly baptized after genuine repentance. I baptized several people and later came to realize, and some of them did too, that they were never really converted at all. And Mr. Armstrong baptized people, and then some of us later rebaptized them, and they changed because they didn't understand when they were first baptized. And lots of people have not yet understood what it really meant, or they didn't fully repent when they were baptized. So as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. And brethren, notice that verse carefully. Please notice that you young people particularly, it's mistranslated. The word, the Greek word as the authorities, and please look it up, look it up for your own good, can be translated as sonship. And many of the modern translations have it that way. The New International Version has it that way. 
The Greek word simply means to make a son. It does not say how. It's talking about the spirit of sonship. We're not adopted by God. God doesn't reach over here and say, well, I'm just going to adopt a cow or a horse or even a human being. We are made in God's image in the first place, in the very image of God, with the capacity, with creative imagination and the ability to understand evil and good and to choose the good and resist the evil. And then he directly impregnates us after conversion with the Holy Spirit. He puts his divine nature in us, just like my nature is in my children. And I feel sorry for them sometimes. They see some the bad stuff I used to do reenacted all over again in some of my children, some of the same drives and some of the same problems. And until they're converted, they'll have that to fight every day of their lives. But God's nature comes into us. His very nature, he impregnates us with that holy nature. We are partakers of the divine nature, as it says back in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. So he begets us. That's why he doesn't adopt us. He literally begets us. And we cry out then, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. Not someone who adopted us, but someone from whom we've come right out and have his very nature impregnated into us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God's Spirit helps our human spirit recognize that we've had outside help that we never had before. We can generally change, we can grow, we can overcome as we sense God's Spirit in us. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, what's Christ going to inherit? Well, the whole universe. So we are joint heirs with Christ. As you look out at the sun, the moon, and the stars, recognize, brethren, probably someday you may have an, out there somewhere a whole planet that you're in charge of and maybe a whole galaxy because now the scientists tell us there are as many galaxies, I mean whole solar systems, whole galaxies, as there are or ever have been human beings. Think about that. That's awesome. That's hard to understand how big the universe is. Every now and then they get out there and they think they've discovered it all. And then some science journal will come out a few months later. Well, they've discovered another galaxy. They've never discovered another world out there, whatever. And that happens all the time. They don't know how big this, this universe is. We're joint heirs with Christ. Notice, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. But we've got to suffer with him. And brethren, you young people, why would you want to suffer? Well, you don't want to suffer. I know that, humanly speaking. I don't want to suffer. But am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to go through this veil of wrath and tears that God calls our human life? And are you willing then to be sick at times? Are you willing to be thrown in jail like the Apostle Paul? Remember, the Apostle Paul spent about five years of his ministry, not before he was converted, but after he was converted about five years of his ministry in prison. Two years in Caesarea, several months on the boat to Rome, then two years in his own hired house in Rome, and then the second imprisonment in Rome, which lasted many months. So approximately five years. It might have been more than five years. It might have been slightly less. couldn't have been much less. It could have been, you know, five and a half or six years. We don't know. And he was beaten over and over, five times by the Jews, 39 lashes. He wanted to suffer for Christ. You get jerked over some big 
a metal or trussel or something tied down, whack, and the blood starts going down your back, whack, and more blood starts going down your back. And they keep on 39 times till you faint from pain. That ain't fun. But Paul went through that over and over again. What was his reward for that? One cold morning, about 1967 or 8, or 67 or 8, shows by, <laughs> 1967, that's 1967 seems a long time. I'm talking about 67. He was perhaps herded out of prison or somewhere, taken out, put his head on a chopping block, and his head was chopped off. But what happened then? In the next split second, he will see Christ. In the next split second, he will be in the kingdom of God. God is trying and testing every one of us and for those who have the greatest reward, he's going to put us through more trials and more tests. Every one of the original apostles died as a martyr, except possibly the apostle John. Every one. And the Bible indicates that pretty clearly, and the history indicates that. So you think about it. Certainly a lot of trials and tests are in the way. For I consider that the sufferings, verse 18, of this present time, and we have to go through some suffering, and you will, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed not to us, but in us. The Greek word is in, in us. We're going to have that glory inside ourselves. So, brethren, think about that. And you young people, you're called now, and many of you young people do understand, to be able to help prepare for a coming government, a whole new dimension of human existence. And that whole new dimension of human existence is going to be something that changes this world, changes all of us, and of course it leads to spirit beings being born into the very family of God, the government of God, to where we can actually be God's full sons and interact with Christ, interact with God the Father, talk with them, walk with them, share with them jobs and, you know, fellowship with God and with each other throughout all eternity. It's something we, it's hard to imagine. We will have faces shining like the sun, like Christ does now, as you read the description of Christ in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. These sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed that's got to be our goal. We've got to think about we have a goal. We're going to help change this world. We're going to help warn this world now and help them realize as we read, as my wife and I were watching the BBC News again just last night, there's terrible suffering and deprivation all through the Congo and various parts of Kenya, all over Nigeria, Somalia, other parts of Africa, and of course there's terrible suffering and even beginnings of a possible war out in Southeast Asia where the people in Afghanistan are being held down and there are all these wars and tribal wars and wars between the normal people and the drug dealers and then the Americans come in to try to strike some of the bad guys and end up killing some of the good guys in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the armies of Pakistan and India are lining up against each other. Both of them have nuclear bombs, by the way. We don't know when that's going to happen, something like that out there. In the meantime, the Israelis came roaring into the Gaza Strip this morning, bombing the people there because they'd been tossing rockets over and destroying people in Israel. All over this world, there's hate, there's violence, there's suffering. And it's getting worse. Again, you young people say it's always been like that. No, it has not always been like that. 
When I was growing up, I read the newspapers regularly. We had the Nazi growing menace, and Churchill was like a voice in the wilderness, but there weren't little wars like that roaring all over the world. And when Mr. Raymond Manera and I went down to northern Rhodesia and later southern Rhodesia and South Africa on the baptizing tour back in 1960, it was peaceful. I think the people sometimes resented the British. They didn't do perfectly, but they kept order. And there was not lawlessness there. And people had plenty to eat. We went out in the villages. They had plenty to eat and things were much better. There's all these tribal wars and other wars roaring all over the world far beyond any other time in human history. And if you studied human history, you begin to realize that it's going to get worse before it gets better. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. It's just like these people in these terrible situations where they're starving and lots of their children are growing up with malaria and other diseases all through these nations. They're waiting. It's just like they're aching for a new government. They're aching for a righteous government. They're aching for you and me and many of you young people to be there in God's family, God's kingdom to say, look, quit fighting. This is the way. Walk you in it. We don't have to be perfect to be there. We've got to be just willing to yield to God and to grow toward perfection. But we're not going to make perfection in this human life. I can tell you sincerely, I've never made perfection. I know that. And Mr. Armstrong would tell you the same thing. He didn't make perfection at all. King David didn't make perfection. He was a man after God's heart. What are the last two of the last two things that David said? He told uh, uh, his son Solomon, he says, You know what old Shimei did and how he cursed me when I fled from your son, uh, my, uh, my son, uh, Absalom. Take care of him. Don't let his gray head come down to the grave in peace. He said, you know how Joab turned against me. He said, you execute him. Well, that wasn't very Christian, was it? <laughs> but on the other hand, David, of course, was not called to understand. He was in a different age. Nevertheless, he will still have things to learn, and he made mistakes throughout his entire life. And he was not perfect. And you know that's why God lets the faults of the great men of God be there to recognize he is concerned with the attitude those men went all out of the attitude they had with the knowledge that they had, even though they made mistakes along the way. When David sinned big in committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah, he repented profoundly. And God knows his heart very sincerely. He went in and fell on the ground and fasted, apparently, for seven days. Have you ever fasted with nothing for seven days? I haven't. For seven days he was there asking God to forgive him and to protect and heal that child. He had a profound repentance. And the Bible says he never did anything like that again. Never. So God tells the faults of his heroes, but he doesn't expect us to be nicey nice, but he does expect us to go all out and to have that big picture in our mind that we're here for a purpose. We understand. We know the God of the Bible. That God is real. We know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel and Moses and Samuel and David. That God is real. We know the big events in prophecy have happened and they are happening point by point by point. And that is very, very real. And we can read about it every day. So we've got to have faith in that and base our faith on reality, not just on, a, on an emotion. So the creation is almost crying out for the revealing of the sons of God 
for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. You see, God did it for a purpose. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, notice, groans and labors with birth pangs until now. As though the whole world is crying out. The waters are being polluted. The air is being polluted. The foods we eat are being doctored and treated and polluted. The cities are being polluted. The airwaves are being polluted. You punch the button and here's some adultery right up there on your television. And semi-adulterous situations that your little children have to watch and you have to quick change the channel. It's getting absolutely foul. It's getting worse and worse and worse. All around us we're surrounded with Satan and Satan's broadcasting system and people suffering and people dying because mankind is polluting the world and so the world is crying out. Crying out for what? Crying out for right government. Crying out for the revealing of the sons of God. And you and I can be those spirit-born sons. Many of us now are begotten sons. And you young people all can become begotten sons, having God's Spirit in you now. But if you fully surrender and you mean it and don't play games with God, please don't do that. You can fool the minister you're counseling about baptism with and sound all nicey nice, but you can't fool God. I can't give you the Holy Spirit. Mr. Apartheid and the other ministers, we can't give you the Holy Spirit. Only God can give you the Holy Spirit. And you've got to give your life to God and really mean it. And then he will give you the Holy Spirit and you will begin to change and you will begin to grow under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And you've got to do your part along the way, of course. You've got to profoundly study this book. This is the mind of God in print. Study it with that thought in mind. Meditate on it. Think about it. I haven't done that as much as I have, but this time I've had now of sickness has made me realize I need to slow down and think and meditate on the meaning of all these things and on certain things that I haven't thought as deeply on. Learn to meditate. Think over the wheres and why for, wherefores and whys and everything like that more than maybe you've done. Meditate on God's law day and night like King David did. What's the application of God's law here? What's the application of God's law there? Meditate. Then pray. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say he felt the greatest weakness of the prayers of God's people was that they did not put their hearts in their prayers. Because so many of us grew up, as I did, in a Protestant church or Catholic, you know, the Catholic just recite, you know, Holy Mary, Mother of God, blah, 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 or the Protestant little kids kneel down at night or lay in bed, as I used to. And Daddy and Mother knelt there, and we'd say, Now I'll lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to take, you know, and all this kind of thing, about rattle that off. That has no meaning to God particularly. It's sweet, yes, but you've got to learn to cry out to God with your being, maybe until you start perspiring. I mean it. Put your being in your prayer. Say, Father, help me, guide me, strengthen me. Help me to fulfill the purpose of human existence. Help me to become like you are that I'm fit through your spirit within me to be a king or a priest. Help me to be that kind of person. Help me to develop that kind of character that kind of outflowing concern, that kind of wisdom that I can be the right kind of leader in your coming kingdom. It says down here in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good 
to those who love God. You see, not to everybody. Some people just say, all things work for good. You know, you're seeing various Protestant friends and they'll spout that off. No, they don't. They don't all work for good in all their lives right now at this time because they don't know God. They don't love God. You love God by keeping His commandments. They don't do that. So some of the immediate things they do turn out for bad. But all things work for good if, you see, to those who love God and to those who are called. Most of you are being called or you wouldn't be here according to His purpose. For whom He foreknow, knew He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He wants us to fully reflect Jesus Christ. So if you feed on this book and you read over and over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and think, what did Christ do? Not your imagination of how you think Christ would do. What did He do? And you ask for Christ to live His life in you. That's what God wants. That, you, that He, Christ, might be the firstborn of many brethren. Many people are going to come forth from God as full sons of God and full brothers of Christ. And brethren, you know, it's inspiring to think about that sometimes as you pray, that you're praying to God the Father, and up next to Him is Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. He's our merciful and faithful high priest. He understands. He was tempted in all points like as we are. He's also our elder brother. He's our elder brother right now and going to be a full brother later when we're born of God and our coming King. The firstborn of many brothers... All of us will be sons of God, moreover whom He predestined, He called, whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, He glorified. That is His purpose. He glorified us. That's His purpose. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the whole thing. We have to understand that. If some of you later are thrown in jail or some of you later are terribly suffering because of something, or some of you later may be thrown into police camps or concentration camps if you're still around and not taken to a place of safety. You've got to, brethren, you've got to keep the big picture in mind. You have a goal. You are made in the image of God, and God is absolutely reproducing Himself. And He's not going to let anyone into His kingdom who has not been through the mill, so to speak. You've got to go through this obstacle course, if you want to call it like. We call it human life. The ups and downs, the trials and tests. And God is letting us all go through that so that He knows where we stand. He's got to know where we stand. And that's important. And I hope you're willing to understand that and do your part, of course, in that. Now, if you would, turn back to Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Hebrews chapter 4 and beginning in verse 15. He says, Seeing then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 4, now verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. In every single point of God's law, a murder. The, the, the temptation to murder, the temptation for adultery, the temptation to do this or that. Christ was tempted on every one of those points. He was tempted. Didn't mean he accepted the temptation. You know, there's a difference between looking at a woman and thinking, here's a beautiful woman. That's not wrong. 
but then you roll around a mental picture and begin to commit adultery in your mind. If you do that, then you're committing adultery spiritually, as God Christ shows in, in, in the Bible. So you've got, you may have an immediate upset if someone hurts you or yells at you or shoves you or whatever, but you'd better not turn around in your mind the mental picture of killing that person. Going through that in your mind is entertaining, entertaining the idea of killing them. Because then if you had the opportunity, you probably would. So you've got to ask God to clean up your mind. Clean up your mind, your attitude, everything about you so you think like Christ thinks and like God thinks. But we have a high priest who was tempted in every way. He understands. He understands. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have to come boldly and say, Father, I need help. And really do it. Not be afraid to cry out to God. And even with emotion, go in a private place. Get down on your knees and beg God for help. Ask Him to help you and guide you and deliver you. Turn over to chapter 5 now and beginning in verse 5. Let's skip a few verses. I wish I could read them all. But Hebrews 5, verse 5, he talks about Christ and he says in another place, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which Christ is, who in the days of his flesh, in the days of the human life of Jesus Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications uh, with, tear, with vehement cries and tears. It says vehement cries and tears. He must have been shaking and bawling. Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, was shaking and bawling. Father, help me. I have to make it because of all these other people I can't afford to send one time ever. Help me with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. But though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. We learn by suffering. And Dr. Frankel points that out in this unusual book on man's search for meaning in a marvelous way, a different way, but it makes you think. I didn't have time to read the whole book, but it's very well put together. So though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He learned by suffering. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Not those who just say, well, I accept Jesus. You know, Billy Graham's column say, just let, invite Jesus into your life or, or whatever. No, you better do more than that. You'd better heartfeltly repent. And give your life to God and let Christ live his life in you. That's what it's all about. Then let's go at this point, if you would, back to chapter 2. And of course, brethren, again, think about the trials and the tests that you have had. How many of you have had terrible sicknesses? How many of you have lost mates through death or divorce or something else? How many of you have been put down and humiliated? How many of you may have had other terrible trials come on you where it hurts? God is testing you and testing you for a magnificent purpose. You've got to think beyond the test and see that purpose. Hebrews chapter 2 now, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and obedience received a just reward back then, you know, when they would execute people who were murdered or killed or raped, they would just simply take them out and kill them. 
they wouldn't spend 10 or 15 million dollars putting them in a fancy prison with a television set. They, they had a different way of solving the problem. Uh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, notice, God did that. And brethren, as we cry out as a church and ask our Father in heaven, Father, please help us draw close to you and build again the atmosphere of faith that the early Christians had, where we have an atmosphere of faith, we will begin to get more healings, more miracles, all kinds of awesome blessings. So God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, yes, tomorrow's world, we call it, of which we speak in subjection to angels. Angels are not to do that. God made them as servants, that they're not going to be in charge. But one testified in a certain place. And here he is again paraphrasing, you know, Psalm 8, which we read at the beginning. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him, you made him a little lower, or for a little while lower, as it can be, than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, in God's plan or purpose, that's been done. And set him over the works of your hand. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. And Mr. Armstrong came to explain that back in the spring of 1953 when I was in graduate class. He didn't understand that before. He used to say, fellas, when we are born of God, we're going to be sort of like. That doesn't sound like Mr. Armstrong for those of you who know him. Sort of like. <laughs> he was a very dogmatic person. Sort of like super archangels. Later he came to realize, no, we're not just super archangels. We're going to be full sons of God because God is reproducing Himself. We are made to be members of the very family of God on the God level of existence. There is the mineral kingdom, and then there is the plant kingdom of the flowers and the grass and the trees. Then there is the more complicated, the animal kingdom. Then there is the human kingdom of human beings above the animal kingdom. Then there's the spirit kingdom of the angels and archangels. But above all kingdoms, above all levels of existence is the kingdom of God. And that is the kingdom into which you and I can be born. A different level of existence. So we need to really grasp that fact in the awesome, the magnificent goal that we have. The fantastic opportunity that we have, brethren, if we can really appreciate that and make it. So, in that he put all in subjection to him, he left nothing. And some of the commentaries pause here and say that the word here indicates the universe. But they don't realize. They just sort of go on and they indicate the wording here indicates the whole universe. He has, in fact, put the whole universe under man, potentially. Because God's over the universe. And when we're full members of the family of God, we will share in that government over the entire universe. So we can't say for sure you're going to be over a whole cosmos or over a whole galaxy, but it's very possible. We're going to share and rule over the entire universe. No wonder God is trying and testing us. No wonder God is working with us, teaching us lessons. No wonder 
it seems so long sometimes when things happen and you don't get well right away or you're in jail and you don't get out or you've lost your job and you don't get the job back right away. He's testing you. Will you walk with God regardless? Will you keep your mind on the big goal? Will you keep your mind on that purpose? Is that purpose of human existence the opportunity to become a full member of God's very family more important to you more in the forefront of your mind than anything else? Is it the overriding, the overarching purpose of your existence? You must make it that, brethren. And so, in that he has put all in subjection, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now, he says, and that's true, now we do not see all things under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone for it was fitting for him Jesus Christ for whom are all things because God made all things for Christ and by whom are all things in bringing notice many sons to glory Christ is bringing many sons to glory not just a few to make the author of their salvation perfect through what happy times <laughs> no, sufferings. You got to think about that. God is testing us. Please don't bypass that. That's how he works with us. But I'll tell you the awesome reward that's there is beyond our human comprehension. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. That's another key thing that, brethren, I think as I look back on it, in the 36 years I knew Mr. Armstrong and was in his house many times, sometimes shared the same bedroom with him and trips and knew him. I always remember key things about him, and he was not perfect. He very had an artistic temperament sometimes and would yell at people when he got upset. You'll hear bad things. But he had a sense of faith. He knew God was there and he put his trust in God in a remarkable way. He put his trust in God. Do you? Do I? So we need to rebuild that and God wants us to do that so that we in fact walk with God in all those ways as we should. Now, brethren, turn, if you would, back to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse 5. Thus says the ever-living one, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the eternal. Often in our society, we look to human beings and we put trust in them and think they're going to solve all our problems. We think the United Nations will solve our problem. We think some president will solve our problems or some other human being. No, they won't. No, they won't. Don't put your trust in man. But you've got to be sure you put your trust in God. Verse uh, 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the eternal and whose hope is in the eternal. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Verse 9, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. 
The heart, get this, a very familiar verse. The heart, the basic inner attitude of man. The heart is deceitful above all things. I've had, I've often been fooled by pretty girls because I was the freshman Bible teacher for years in Ambassador College and I counseled the men and the young women more than others simply because I was their freshman Bible teacher. And the young men would usually say, well, I'm a pretty rotten skunk, or they try to confess their sins, and I could figure them out. But the little girls sat there, and they were so sweet and so kind, and, and we dunked some of them in the water. And I didn't think, well, they're so sweet and pretty, they must not have very much to repent of. And later we found there were, they had a lot to repent of, and they didn't repent. <laughs> so don't trust your heart, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't make any difference. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the eternal, search the heart. I test the mind. He's testing you. He's testing me. We need to recognize that with all these things we go through. He's testing me right now in this stroke. How am I going to react? Am I to get all upset and say, God, what's wrong with you? And pound on the table or something. Or do turn aside or something else. Some of you, he's being tested, or being tested. Well, what are you going to do? Say, oh, Mr. Meredith, this way or that, so we're going to leave, or, or like, uh, and I haven't had any of this, by the way. I'm so grateful, but we haven't had any Absaloms or Adonijahs trying to overthrow me yet, and I'm grateful for that. But you see, those tests are coming. Then we have the outsiders, and I've heard that they're members of a certain church here in the country, and then what some of their members overseas have said, like this man, that I just talked about at the beginning, saying, well, when Rod Meredith rise, then uh, we're going to take over, and we're, they're going to have to merge with us, and blah, blah, blah. They're waiting. You read the Psalms, and over and over, David said, my enemies are waiting for me to die so they can do this or that. King David went through exactly the same thing. And the human nature has not changed. I test the mind, even to every man according to his ways, to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So God is testing us, each one of us, and we've got to put our faith and trust in God. Again, verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the ever-living one and whose hope is in the Lord, whose hope is in God. That's what God wants. He wants that faith. Turn back to Psalm 33 now, brethren. Psalm 33, and I read this to you a few months ago, but I want to do it again. Psalm 33, verse 10. David, this is a psalm of David, this wonderful man. Verse 10. The ever-living one brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples to no effect. They think, oh, they're going to bring world peace, and they're going to, no, it's not going to work out. I'm sorry. The counsel of the eternal stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the eternal and the people whom he's chosen as his own inheritance. The eternal looks from heaven. He sees the sons of men. See, he's looking down now. And I'm not kidding. He really is. He's looking down on this place here right now. Why? Because there are probably more of his people gathered together here than in most other places on the face of the earth right now. They might have a few more in Kansas City, but they're an hour behind us. <laughs> and they may not have as many. We don't know. But there are a lot of his folks right here. And we can pray for them in Kansas City. 
I keep threatening Mr. Millich to say, we're, we're passing you, but we haven't passed him yet. <laughs> of course, he's glad to have us pass him in numbers because he knows this is, this is headquarters and we're growing faster. But he looks down on us. He's concerned about each one of us. He sees the sons of men. It says he fashions their hearts individually. Verse 15, he fashions their hearts individually. He's working with you. He's seeing what does John Smith need to learn? What does Mary Jones need to learn? I've got to put her through this trial and test. How will she react? Will she react humbly, lovingly, patiently, or will she blow her tongue? I can't stand this. I'm mad. I'm going to get out of here. See, you have to think about it. God is watching each one of us, all of us here. He fashions our hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope or a tank or, you know, aircraft carrier, we should say today, is a vain hope of safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the eternal is on those who fear him. We each one have to develop the awe of God, not fear as of a monster, but to recognize there's a great being up there in heaven whose face shines like a blinding light, whose voice could come across and literally knock this building down, this whole hotel, easily, like rolling thunder, the voice of God, and shakes the earth like a rag doll, as he's going to do a little bit later. He will do that so that every mountain and every island will be shaken out of his place. That's our God. It's real. And these things will really happen. We've got to have that awe on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. We're going to have famine here. Hard times. Are we ready? Is our faith and trust really in that great fact that we are full sons of God? There are going to be. And that's our goal. That's our hope. That's the focus of our lives. Our soul waits on the eternal. He is our help and our shield, for our hearts shall rejoice in him. Because we, why? Because we have trusted. We have trusted. That faith is so important. That trust. We have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O eternal, be upon us, just as we hope in you. So, brethren, learn to put that faith in the real God. That God is so real. So very, very real. That's why all these major events that Mr. Armstrong talked about, and I've recited them. I don't want to go through that every time, but you've heard me. Event after event affecting major nations, hundreds of millions of people, they've happened, and others are happening now. God is so real, and we need to have that faith and trust in that great God and in His purpose. So we need to realize that the trials and tests we go through are a tremendous purpose. Always keep that purpose in mind that God is your Father, that you're made in the image of God, that He wants you in His kingdom, He wants you in His family. He's not going to try to keep you out, but if He lets you go through trials and tests in His love and His wisdom, it's going to work out right. All things will work together for good if you love God, if you really love God. And focus on that purpose, you see, if you're called according to his purpose. So you have to really understand that. So we're called to a magnificent glory in the very family of God. So we've got to keep our eyes on God and we've got to prepare 
for God's wonderful purpose because his purpose is way beyond what most of us can imagine. Let's recognize, brethren, and you young people, that in the next five to ten years, you're going to live through things that probably some of you, especially younger people, you may not fully get it. You may not think, well, I'm just talking. But I'll tell you, these things are going to begin to happen. The worst may not happen for 15 years. I don't know that. I think most of it will probably be underway within less than 10 years. I say underway at least. But that's up to God. But our country's had its zenith. It's going down and down and down. And Europe is going up, other nations. And we're living into a different era than we've ever experienced before. We've got to understand that the God we serve is real. The things we've talked about are happening. And put our faith and trust in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, the God of Moses, the God of David, the God of Peter and James and John, the God of the Apostle Paul. And God then guided his church down through the dark ages and had men later like Peter Waldo come along and later men like Jacob Brinkerhoff and A.N. Duggar and later a man named Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. He raised up and helped carry on the church of God called by God's name understanding through the holy days the great purpose of God the purpose that's being worked out that God is reproducing himself so never forget that and never get your mind off that purpose that purpose that reason for being can sustain you through anything if Christ be for us if God be for us as I read who can be against us so let's have faith in God and move forward to do the work of God with zeal, knowing the great God is on our side because we will be with all our hearts on his side and give our lives to him.